Welcome to the Highly Objective Podcast, where we talk to cannabis industry executives and investors and go into the weeds on recent news. I started uh, two companies in the cannabis industry, uh, one in 2015 called Hemper, uh, which has morphed into a larger CPG conglomerate called Hara Brands. And then I started in 2018, another vertical called Hara Supply, which is the largest manufacturer of pre-rolled cones and combustibles alike in the industry. And we produce over a hundred million cones a month for the market and a lot of the big vanity brands. Uh, when I first started back in 2015, Hemper was originally a direct to consumer subscription box for discovering new smoking accessories. And it was really taking after the Birch Box, Dollar Shave Club, you know, subscription economy that was going on in 2015. And really there was no online resources for discovering new products. And so I wanted to be the category leader in consumers discovering their next best favorite product. And so that's what we set on to do. And we actually did a stint with celebrity curated boxes for a while where it was kind of like smoke like Snoop Dogg for a month. And then that transformed into more of a novelty theme based approach, which people ended up liking a lot more. You know, if you're doing a Snoop Dogg box for a month and half your subscribers don't like Snoop Dogg, you're, they're not going to buy the box. Right. But you can convince thousands of people to buy into a gaming theme or a food based theme, you know, something along those lines. And then about a year and a half after we launched, uh, we realized that product development was going to be our saving grace and actually innovating on the products that were in the industry and then releasing that through the subscription service, getting data and feedback from our thousands of consumers, and then taking that feedback and going to retail and distribution partners and then selling our branded CPG products to them to get into stores. So it was more of a data-driven approach to product development in this industry, while most people are just coming up with a random idea and barely have enough money for mold fees and they're barely, you know, have enough money for a trade show at or a table at a trade show. And they're kind of just on this like begging spree. Ours is more vetted products to thousands of end consumers prior to even going to a retail store. And then halfway through 2018, we got this interesting opportunity as we were producing a lot of products out of India already. And there was this pre-rolled cone shortage in the market. And we were approached by one of our fellow distributors, uh, partners that said, hey, I've got a lot of money outstanding with one of the rolling paper companies. I've got 20 week plus lead times. I know you're producing stuff in India and I know they make stuff similar like this uh, in India. Could you guys figure it out? And so it took us about six months figured out how to make cones, went back to that partner and showed them the cones, walked out with basically a million dollar purchase order that day that funded our first facilities and kind of fast forwarding to today, we're now at 14 facilities with about 4,000 employees producing over a hundred million cones a month for the market. Yeah. And let's, let's go back to Hemper. So from a subscription standpoint, how many subscribers do you have today and roughly how many boxes are you shipping annually? So currently we have about 33,000 subscribers at various different packages and products. Uh, and then we're shipping, you know, 
north of seven figures packages a year. And, and are you still doing those limited run celebrity design curations or had you stopped doing that given what you said about, you know, sort of being very polarizing between certain celebrities that customers will like and, and not like? Yeah, we have not gone back to that yet. We are currently in talks with a few of the big record labels that would like us to take over merchandising for tours and other things uh, for their artists. However, when we were doing it years ago, it was very difficult, you know, nailing down the artist and getting them to put up the social post and dealing with the manager and the agent and the, you know, and the record label and the, you know, the boyfriend that's pretending to be a manager. And, you know, we just were trying to wrap our head around it to make it as smooth as possible, but it never ended up working out. And oftentimes we sold less product than we actually were anticipating. And what we found is that more people actually appreciate a themed based approach uh, than the actual celebrity side, even though we're such a celebrity obsessed, you know, country, they like the themes because we turned their bong collections into more of a sneaker collection, as opposed to, you know, how many beaker bongs can you have sitting on the same shelf? And are you guys leveraging a lot of influencers on social media to do that today? Yeah, totally. We probably have about two or 300 influencers that we work with on a monthly or every other month basis to seed products out, get new products to them for testing. So they're kind of like not only just a sounding board, but also a billboard at the same time. Got it. And I, I want to go back to sort of earlier when you first started the company around 2015, I think you had a few competitors and you've outlasted them because you went and, and vertically integrated the company. So kind of walk us through that landscape then and, and sort of what pushed you to become vertically integrated. Yeah, so early on, uh, you know, once we started scaling past like a thousand boxes, it was really difficult to just go to like a random distributor and say, hey, I need a thousand bongs, the same color, the same style, and I need it delivered in 30 days, right? Because we didn't have cash flow to buy months and months and months worth of inventory. And so that was really difficult. So that's when we, and I had this dream of being like the first subscription box to have only American made glass in uh, the box. But I don't know if you've ever tried sourcing or manufacturing something here in the States. It's almost impossible. Like we literally make nothing here. It's pretty insane to me. So we had to go overseas uh, to do that. And, you know, I, I think truly what kept us in the lead above the other boxes was really that product innovation. You know, we were basically making products before people even knew they needed it or knew like they wanted it. And so I think that's really powerful. And I think a lot of companies that are innovating on their CPG side are winning when they take that approach. Uh, and, you know, Apple does that, you know, they make features that don't make sense today, but totally make sense tomorrow, right? And we've really had that ethos since, you know, late 2015. And, you know, we kept the three C's in mind, which you've got content, community, and commerce. And we really garnered the community, uh, you know, through social influence and social proof and, 
activations and different influencer marketing and things like that. And then, you know, content, we produce all of our content in house, we make it fun, we make it educational. And then commerce, you know, we've got a really great website, it's easy to shop on, you know, not too many bells and whistles, we got a really great conversion rate and a low bounce rate. And so I think keeping all of those factors in mind, and then coupled with the product innovation really just was a recipe for success. While I feel like other boxes were just cycling in other people's products and brands. And it was kind of the same stuff over and over and over again, while we were innovating and changing every month, everyone kind of stayed the same. Yeah, no, that that's really amazing. You had that insight back then because, you know, even some of your inspiration for a subscription box, uh, you've outlasted some of those inspirations, or at least certainly made more money than them because they, they weren't vertically integrated because it's much tougher to do that in food or some of the other categories. Yeah, no, totally. And and then let's talk about how many retail distribution channels are you in um, today and, and sort of how do you get more into additional mass market C-stores or more mainstream retailers or dispensaries? Yeah, totally. So currently, you know, it, it's difficult to say. I can tell you that we self-distribute to about 2000 retailers. However, you know, we've got probably two or 300 wholesaler and distributors that are more on the cash and carry side that it's really hard for us to tell how many stores we're actually in once it goes to the distributor. You know, we can ask them and get data back as much as possible, but really with the smoke shop world, it's kind of like a you know, ghost town in terms of like data and reporting information. So it's not like alcohol or C stores where they're reporting, you know, cigarettes and other tobacco products and alcohol sales. So we're kind of in the dark when it comes to like total mass retailers, but I would say we're probably in about, you know, anywhere from three to 5,000 retailers. We self-distribute to about, you know, 30, 40, 50% of those. And then the other ones we rely on our distribution partners. And that's mainly for like the C, I mean, for the smoke shop world and dispensary world. Uh, in terms of C stores, which is a new vertical that we've gotten into this year with a few of our new products, we're self-distributing to about 700 stores, I would say now. And then we are so close to getting onboard into Cormark and EB Brown, which will open us up to over, 5,000 retailers. So uh, we're super excited about that. We're in the final stages of getting onboarded there and Travel Centers of America is bringing it in, uh, one of our new products in into some of their California locations to test it there. Uh, and then we're gonna be getting into a lot more corporate chains after that. And on the self-distribution side, is that company owned vehicles that are going to these stores or are some of them small enough that you're just shipping from FedEx, UPS or USPS? Uh, yeah, most of them are, you know, depending on if it's a big chain, we'll LTL a pallet to a sorting facility and then they'll dish it out. Uh, however, a lot of retailers want us to ship straight to their stores. And a lot of them don't have very sophisticated ERP setups. So for example, Every store for a chain called Smoker Friendly has to order individually from us. So we basically set up online accounts for each of their 300 locations so that each store manager can go on and just buy whatever they need to fill the store that sold through. 
And so we self-distribute to that. However, once we get into a core mark, then we'll start actually shipping through core mark to some of these retailers. Uh, and we do not have a fleet of cars. We are using UPS and LTL mainly for our wholesale purchases. And we ship that out of our 40,000 square foot headquarters in Las Vegas. Got it. Thanks for explaining that to us. Um, let's bounce a bit over to sort of, you know, competitive landscape. So for, for both companies, but start with Hemper. Is there really any competition today in your view? So... I hear this from a lot of the CEOs of the distribution companies that all rave that our glass products sell through is awesome. We have great velocity and it's because we have, like I said earlier, totally turned the traditional water pipe collection into a collectible theme based sneaker collection. And our products are really unique and they're priced economically. So they're priced to move and they're really fun and they just make you smile and you don't know why. And I think that our ethos behind that and our glass has allowed us to create better skew penetration in our distribution partners as they test the glass and it's so different from what's on the market then they see success with that they try some of our accessories they realize the accessories are unique and innovative they see success with that and then they say hey you know they eventually call me and say hey we've got 200 products from you guys you know what do you think we're missing right and then it's our duty to give them and fill the holes that we believe they're missing in terms of what products that do so well for us that they don't have. And then also we do protect them on the retailer side, right? So oftentimes we'll get retailers saying, hey, you know, I buy currently from so-and-so distributor. However, they don't have your full catalog. And so we'll actually call the distributor and tell them, hey, we got a couple calls from some of your retail clients. They're claiming you guys don't carry the full catalog and they want to buy certain products. We would prefer not distributing to them and not taking business from you and want to protect you as the distribution partner. Please bring in excuse so that you can fulfill their needs. And so it really works in our favor because we don't want to self-distribute to retailers. We want the distributors who do well at self-distributing to them uh, to take that on. We just want to focus on product development. That, that makes sense to kind of stay in your lane and, and focus on something that you guys do extremely well. Totally. So what about on the cone side, help us understand the landscape there. It seems like there was sort of a gap in the market, hence you had a opportunity to enter and have done really well, uh, a billion two of, of cones uh, annually. Um, what does that look like from a competitive landscape standpoint? Yeah. So I want to make a big differentiation. There's a ton of middlemen cone companies out there that you can buy cones from. Whether you get those cones is still a mystery. We are direct manufacturers, which means we own and operate our facilities. We're able to prioritize, speed things up, move things around, pretty much all flexibility from a consumer standpoint that they're looking for from, you know, an MSO or a cannabis brand. And so we are 
the largest manufacturer in the world for pre-rolled cones. We produce over 100 million cones a month for the market. And there is really only, I would say, about two other competitors. And those are the other direct manufacturing companies. And so if you take like a, for example, a Custom Cones USA, who is more of a middleman, they're buying capacity from companies like us or other manufacturers, they can't really do the same maneuvering, prioritization, customization uh, that we can do. And so we go into the conversation as a standpoint from a solutions partner approach instead of a one size fits all. And we get involved with the product development teams at the MSOs, we get involved with the marketing teams and we truly understand what the vision is to bring to market and we go and produce that for them. We don't try to pigeonhole them into something that we know we're confident and we can produce. We love innovation. We love moving the needle forward. And so we're always down to try something new, whether it's, you know, a, a can of, you know, a connoisseur infused blunt with a glass tip or a ceramic tip with a cigar band. And, you know, they want us to increase the humidity or the GSM on the paper. We'll go above and beyond, deal with our raw material suppliers, and we'll bring that product to market. And I think that's really important to differentiate because everybody's looking to bring their version of what the Coca-Cola can is going to be eventually. And I think everybody's really trying to figure that out right now. And so when I hear companies are paying you know, overpaying for blank cones and they don't have their branding on the filter tips. And I'm saying, wow, you guys are losing so many opportunities for that post cannabis sale transaction where they're posting, you know, photos on Instagram and social media. They're hanging out with their friend groups. They're at parties. And that's a blank cone with your brand missing. And you're not getting that, you know, Kodak moment. Right. And Oftentimes brands are saying, wow, like we would love to come out with branded products. We just haven't been able to find a good supplier for it. And so please, everybody listening, come to Har Supply because we are here waiting, willing, you know, wishing to help bring those products that you want to see come to fruition to market. And it's not a one size fits all model. It's truly a custom house, ODM, OEM, whatever you need, we will do it. So it seems like a pretty compelling sales pitch to MSOs or CPG brands or dispensaries to, to use your company. Um, so is it just more of a, a matter of time before some of the other MSOs? Yeah, I, I saw somewhere that 17 of the top 30 MSOs today are customers. So is it just a matter of time before some of these customers or not customers right. turn over? Yeah, I think, you know, with a lot of the turnover on the C-suite side, you know, nobody's really paying attention. And I think that once I'm able to get to the CEO, CFO, or COO, and I say, it's a really simple value prop. I want to save you money, which is directly going to hit your bottom line. And I want to bring exactly what you want to bring to market. It's pretty simple, right? And so once someone in the C-suite level hears that, they disseminate it and we move forward pretty quickly. When I'm dealing from a bottom up approach with a procurement officer, whether they're getting a kickback from some other company or they love the buyer at the other company and they don't like me because I'm a little bit more aggressive or whatever it may be, you know, that is going to be the demise of a lot of these companies where you've got 20 stakeholders in an organization making bad decisions. And there's a reason why a lot of these MSOs are losing, you know, nine figures a year or seven figures a year, eight figures a year, 
because they've got people making bad decisions based on emotions or whatever else it might be, right? When I have a very candid conversation where it's super save money, bring exactly what you want to bring to the market, conform it to your automation equipment, whatever it might be, it's music to their ears, right? And a lot of people are looking for companies like us. They just haven't heard of us or haven't really been thinking about the cogs in that wheel. And so it's kind of our job to get in front of them and create intros and make them understand like we truly can save you money. And not only can we save you money, we can bring exactly what you want to bring to market pretty quickly. Yeah, I got to imagine just saying that you work today with ZigZag, with Raw, with Jeter, with Steezy, some of these uh, customers should be really compelling for someone to say, oh, if, if they're using it, I should also be using, you know, horror supply. Of course. Yeah, that social proof aspect is totally there. You know, when we set up at our horror supply shows, like a Hall of Flowers, for example, you know, we've got some of our core brands that we produce for at the show with their, you know, cones with the print on it. And so once people see that, you know, Steezy and Jeter and Claiborne and Viola and all the big vanity brands, Timeless, you know, all purchase from us, it gives them a sense of security. And I think that's another thing to touch on is that, you know, while maybe a middleman cone provider like a Custom Cones USA could deliver on their first order, you know, of 100,000 cones, let's say, I think the real caveat is that could they produce a million cones in the same time and actually scale with your business, right? Because if you look at certain markets, like for example, we were looking at Michigan last night and a company called Dragonfly is exploding on the pre-roll side out of nowhere and, you know, over 150% growth rate. And, you know, that's what, that's what keeps this industry so exciting and people, you know, on the ball is that there's a ton of, you know, nobodies coming out of the woodwork and exploding overnight. And, you know, can a middleman company that's buying packaging from China or buying cones from China or what it might be, can they even scale with you? Right. And I think that's a really big thing for the MSOs to realize is that they need to be betting on companies who've got cash flow positive EBITDA businesses and that can really help them scale. Not just can you save me a half a penny or, you know, do I like you better? It, it, it's got to get out of that world. Yeah, definitely. It has to professionalize like every other CPG industry. Yep. We're, we're creating true infrastructure for this industry. So let's, let's go back to, to funding. So um, how much have you guys raised to date? When was your first funding round? Who invested and, and what was the vision at the time? And sort of, you know, where are you today with regards to funding needs? Yeah, so we rate, so we bootstrapped for the first three years of the business. And then early 2018, we raised a million dollar seed round from Evolution Corporate Advisors. And that was with Greg Smith, who's been awesome. Uh, and then shortly after that, we raised a Series A round about, I think, nine months after our seed. And then we had uh, Evolution Corporate came back in, and then they brought in Poseidon to lead the round. And we raised about 1.5 million in that series A. And then about nine months after that, so bringing us to 2019, 
right before the cones exploded. We did a convertible note for about 850,000. Uh, and then right after that, we went cash flow positive and then hadn't needed to raise any more after that. We had a clause where we could have pulled in up to, I think it was 10 million into the series A, but because we are, we grew so fast, the money would have been too expensive and we would have just diluted ourselves. So we ended up not taking that other nine or other eight and a half million. And I'm glad we did, or I'm glad we didn't because we didn't need the money and we didn't have to dilute ourselves as founders. Uh, so it actually ended up working out in our favor. Uh, however, you know, moving forward now, we're completely self-sufficient. We haven't raised since 2019. Uh, you know, we're, you know, no real debt on the business, which is awesome. And, you know, at this point, you know, we are kind of out in the market looking for a strategic to come in and help us scale even faster. While we haven't found that yet, we're talking to a few folks. And so there should be some exciting movement, you know, towards the end of this year or beginning of next year and a lot of exciting things happening. Thanks, and I appreciate you pointing that out because yeah, I saw there was an article that the company did a, a 10 million Series A back in December, 2018. So it's great to know that that um, was up to 10 million and you only took one and a half of it. I'm sure it sounds like, and, and obviously you confirmed, you're very happy about that, but unfortunate for Poseidon and Evolution VC, they didn't have more of the company. Yes, no. It we're really happy that, you know, once we did the convertible note, which was 850 grand, so we raised roughly about three and a half million, call it, uh, total. You know, we went cash flow positive. Obviously, the investors are super ecstatic. You know, we've got over a 15% EBITDA margin. So, you know, things are looking great and we're able to experiment more and test and iterate and get out there. And, you know, we're going after the mass market convenience store. Uh, play this year. So obviously, you know, that's super expensive, but, you know, it's really exciting that we're able to self-fund these projects and just keep building. Wow. 50% even a margin. Um, so I, I assume obviously labor is very favorable with 4,000 or more employees in India. Um, what what else are you doing to kind of keep costs low and, and that even a margin so high? So we're pretty lean here domestically. We're at about uh, 60 65 employees here in the States. Uh, most of them work out of our Las Vegas headquarters here. Uh, so, you know, I love the mindset of, you know, we're, even though things have been roses, we're always bootstrapping. And I love bringing in people into the team that not only can, but want to wear multiple hats. And, you know, I look for the jack of all trades when, especially when we're dealing with so many different things, B2C, B2B, CPG, you know, there's a lot of movement and you got to be able to handle the cadence. And as you know, e-commerce cadence is insane, let alone trying to take on mass market convenience and then let alone trying to deal with the cannabis industry in general. So it's definitely been challenging, but we found a lot of A players that, you know, allow us to pivot and move and test and, just kind of break through that like stigma of like 18 layers of middle management. And, you know, that's probably why a lot of the bigger tobacco companies that are our clients are dealing with us is because we don't have red tape here. If we make a decision, we move forward in less than 24 hours, you know, 
and a lot of the bigger behemoths can't do that at this point. So I think that's what keeps us interesting and exciting and just the, keeping the, you know, moving the finish line, you know, forward. So, so what's the end goal here then? So you, you'll look to take money from a strategic if one's going to provide a lot of value, especially as it relates to distribution. Uh, you know, what, what can we expect three, five years from now for, for the company and yourself? Yeah, so I think a uh, big priority is for us to find the strategic keeps, you know, stay involved, you know, uh, myself and my co-founders were only 32 years old. We started the company when we were 23 years old. So, you know, we've got a lot of gas left in the tank, a lot of ideas, you know, we're just really coming into, you know, that corporatized executive role. And, you know, we've all had to grow up different stages, you know, we're all, some of us are getting married this year, some of us are having kids. And, you know, a lot of us were college roommates. So we've seen multiple stages throughout our life. And, while we're all getting along still, you know, we would like to grow this thing a bit faster and obviously take a wealthy benefit, the opportunity presents itself. And as you know, as a entrepreneur, you know, when you have all of your assets in one asset, you know, it's uh, gets a little nerve wracking as you start building a family. And so, you know, taking chips off the table would be nice. I think finding a strategy that help us distribute more product into more stores and just kind of playing on a larger, you know, playing field, right? I think we've done a great job at building the business with the resources that were at our disposal. And obviously, you know, we're do you know, we've done over $200 million in sales in the last few years. And, you know, for what we've raised, for what we're doing, we're heavily undercapitalized for our, this business. And so we're excited to see, you know, when that strategic presents itself, uh, you know, taking that opportunity, growing it faster and just playing on a bigger field. You know, and, and let me let me ask you this then. So you know, a, a lot of the interviews you've done, uh, there, there's in quotes the king of cones. So I assume some of this is to keep your title, but but where did that actually originate? <laughs> yeah, the king of cones was originated from my PR agency coining me the king of cones. It has that, and I know you you started actually, uh, you know, your entrepreneurial journey was uh, a Hawaiian shaped ice, right? Paradise uh, with, with ICE capital. Yep. Um, so if you think of it as like snow cones, I, I guess, I don't know if you thought about it that way before, maybe uh, it has like a double meaning, right? <laughs> yes, no, for sure. It, it's, um, you know, I, Don Levin, you know, they're coining him the king of rolling papers. And so uh, you know, we went with King of Cones instead. You know, we didn't want to, I don't do anything with booklets other than produce some. So uh, we wanted to keep that title separate. But yeah, no, I, I guess I could be considered the King of Bongs, King of Cones, King of a few things. But uh, yeah. Yeah, that, that's a pretty good one. So good, good move by the PR agency to do that. Yes, no, for sure. So, so let's talk about some some of the challenges in the business. You know, so so things have gone really well for you um, since inception of of you know your first company and your second company. So, what are challenges that that you face or are facing today? I think the challenges are just innately from having a new industry. I think with the cannabis industry in itself, obviously, you know, there's very little infrastructure. There's a ton of turnover. Uh, you know, not a lot of sound business decision making going on. And so I think just working through a lot of that has been 
pretty difficult, you know, having, you know, a three month conversation with one executive, but then all of a sudden they're getting completely replaced and I have to restart the conversation with a new one. And that happens every day, every week, every month there's turnover. And so that's definitely been a challenge. I think, you know, another challenge has been on the collection side, you know, luckily we've been very blessed not to get stiffed with much bad debt. Uh, we've been able to collect from most, if not all of our customers. And so gauging whether to give terms out or floating certain companies, delivering product without payments, you know, just that's been obviously another difficulty is just understanding, are these people insolvent? Are they solvent? Where are they? Because a lot of them aren't publicly traded. And a lot of the publicly traded ones, like at this point, they've got such a big head start. They're not really going to fail. They'll just get kind of bailed out. So I know we can extend ourselves there and not extend ourselves over here with kind of a smaller brand. And so that's been a challenge, obviously. And then, you know, the other one has just been finding personnel, right? You know, being having a career in cannabis is such a new concept, right? Have finding people with experience in this industry has been difficult. You know, it's cool that I can go hire someone from Gatorade, but they're going to know nothing about the nuances of this industry. And it's probably going to be, you know, a short lived role. And I think we could probably see that from, you know, the herbal kind of demise where you've got the most stacked C-suite team in the industry, yet you can't figure out how to pay your bills or pay your customers or your clients. And while, you know, I think Mike Balgi is an awesome guy and really smart, I think that bringing in the smart players from all the big brands, Gap, Home Depot, this and that, UPS, it's not really what you need. You need the jack of all trades. You need the people who are willing to roll their sleeves up, you know, work 12 hour plus days and are just scrappy and, you know, want to win because they have a passion to win, not because they were put in this position from their previous life. And so I think that's been a difficult thing. It's just finding those A players. But, you know, as you know, finding A players pays dividends, you know, comparatively to a B or a C player. So I think that's kind of the stage we're in now. It's just really betting on these A players, paying more for them and just locating them has been a challenge. Um, obviously on the logistics side during COVID was hiccups, speed bumps all over the place. You know, luckily I think we're kind of through all that mess, you know, with logistics rates being through the roof and supply chain being disrupted. That was obviously difficult. Uh, so coupling the cannabis industry on top of that was even more difficult. Um, and I would say, you know, that's, you know, and, and a lot of the last thing I would say challenging wise would be a lot of the software and payment processing stuff. A lot of the bigger ERP softwares won't accept our businesses. You know, they look at us as high risk. And so we haven't, we've either had to build it ourselves or kind of, you know, finagle working with different ERP systems or enterprise software companies, just explain to them, we're not plant touching. We're not really in the cannabis industry. You know, we're a cog in the, you know, line item, you know, so those are, I say would be our biggest challenges to date. Yeah. And go going back to getting paid in this industry and even, you know, you bringing up herbal, I think one of my observation in addition to not having that mix of CPG logistics, but really cannabis experience is that 
you know, they may have taken on more customer risk. Uh, you know, Raw Garden leaving was, was sort of a really big risk for them, which which happened. So they ended up with a bunch of AR that they couldn't get paid on. Um, and I think the other risk is just, you're, you're, like you mentioned, getting paid. So how do you guys manage or, or what systems do you use or, you know, spreadsheet or, or whatever to kind of figure out, okay, hey, this person hasn't paid us, but will, um, you know, is it like, hey, they've been past due for a certain amount past 90 days. So you kind of cut them off. Like, how do you guys kind of determine if someone is still a good customer or will become a good customer again? Yeah. So we take deposits on most orders because most things are custom. So we take anywhere from the 30 to 50% deposit, which typically covers us in the event something does happen. And then we just gauge based on AR aging and history. And then obviously, you know, I've got a pretty savvy controller here who, you know, has worked at five different big accounting firms and he's a CPA. And so he can read 10 Ks and financial statements. So if, you know, one customer's got 500,000 cash on their books and they owe us a million, obviously we're not extending terms next month. Right. And so I think because our product is replenishable, that also keeps customers a little bit more honest because they need pre-roll they need cones to fill to put on the shelf to make money right and i think with the herbal situation they sell cannabis to dispensaries herbal is not the only distributor they can buy other weed or other cannabis products to put on their shelf at the dispensary so they can rob paul to pay peter differently than a cannabis company could to me right if that makes sense yeah, no, it ma makes total sense because um, that's a lot of what California Cannabis was doing. Uh, if if yeah. you were getting paid uh, or you intended as a retailer not to pay someone, you just find another brand or, or vendor to provide that same category of product. Um, yeah. So so I guess going to that point of deposits of 30 to 50%, if for whatever reason they don't pay the balance, it, it feels like you can actually you know, change some of the customization and, and probably sell that to another customer and get face value, if not even a, a bit more than what the original terms is, right? Yeah, I mean, if it's blanks, of course we can flip that around and um, you know sell it to someone else. Uh, if it's custom, we do unfortunately cannot sell it to anyone else, unless it was, for example, a something generic, like it said, like sativa hybrid or indica on the filter tip. Yes, something like that I could probably resell. But if it's somebody's custom brand, there's nothing other than to just throw the product away. Yeah, I was thinking you just change the tip, but keep the the paper. Or are you saying you have to kind of, it, it probably just costs more to do that. So you should just throw the whole thing away. Correct. Yes. We, we try to hold the customer, you know, the feet to their fire. But, uh, you know, sometimes they just go out of business. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately. Uh, and, and that's something you have to plan for working in this industry. Yep. So how do you sort of manage, uh, you know, the, the India team, given that, you know, about 60 to 65 in, in the US, um, but 4,000 in, in India, how do you manage that? Yeah, so my two other business partners, RJ and Henry, uh, both alternate living in India throughout the year, operating our facilities and managing them. And then we also have a few US-based employees that actually are on the operations and engineering side, 
that do live in India most of the year as well. So we have a few folks that are partners that live there, and then we've got a few uh, senior employees that operate out of India as well. That, that makes sense. Uh, and, and how often are you going over there? If you want to know something funny, so <laughs> yeah, definitely. I was supposed to go for my first time March 2020. And COVID canceled my trip. And there's really only like two good times to go in to India due to different varying weather issues, whether it's too hot or it's monsoon season, you know, there's only one or two months out of the year that are good to go. And so I actually have not gone to India yet to see our facilities. So I've been selling billions of cones from the comfort of my seat here in Las Vegas, Nevada. Yeah, no, that makes sense. It, it's pretty much from December to like March and, and really early March that, that you should be in India. Otherwise it gets very hot, but uh, unlike Vegas, there, there's not air conditioning available. Correct, yes. Trust me, I get shit from my co-founders all the time about when they're, when I'm coming. Seems like you <laughs> book your, your trip pretty soon then for uh, this upcoming December. We, I think we're planning for March of next year. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, so call it uh, eight months from now. So that'll, that'll be an interesting trip for you then. It, it will be. I uh, I've never been to that part of the world. So I'm excited, nervous all at the same time. Uh, but yeah. Are there any other sort of categories you think you'd enter? Um, you know, get, given that you do have two businesses that are a bit different that do have, you know, similar ish customer base, but really I, I think of one as more, you know, B to C and the other one's more B to B. Um, so any line of sight into other business or is this enough for you and, and your team to focus on? So I think for the foreseeable 12 months, this is pretty much what we're going to be focusing on. Uh, we will, we've added recently more packaging stuff and some cartridge innovation. Uh, and then we'll probably be entering the vape market here shortly on the CPG side. Uh, we've got some really cool products in development that we're really excited for. Uh, but for right now, we're pretty busy and you know we've got Intertobac coming up in September, which is the largest tobacco show in Europe, which we're preparing for. Then we've got MJ BizCon following that. So two really big, important shows. So we've got a lot of preparation uh, and a lot of new products coming out that we got to focus on selling those before we can come out with other stuff. So as of right this second, you know, we're pretty much in the zone uh, where we're playing. Uh, however, you know, always opportunity coming across, you know, as you get bigger and as you're in the game for longer, the deal flow increases. So we get stuff across our table all the time. And I could see us possibly playing more into the automation infrastructure side for pre-roll filling or, you know, processing and stuff like that. We've made a couple strategic investments, one in accelerant manufacturing uh, and one in another company that's still in stealth mode. Um, and so, yeah, definitely some exciting stuff on the horizon, but yeah, we're, we're good to go right now and where we're playing.
And on the vape front, are, are you saying you'll get into providing vape hardware to, to some of your MSO customers? Yeah, you know, right now, you know, our MSO customers trust us. And I think if we can extend that trust into other categories, it really just turns into an input play for us. What more can we get them to buy? You know, they already trust us with these products. Why not trust us with these other ones? That that feels like a really competitive space uh, to, to, to enter. So I'm curious when, and you know, or I guess you guys are entering it, um, what sort of, you know, tactics you'll, you'll take to kind of separate from the noise because there's definitely a lot of competition, a lot of companies uh, in that space. Yeah, no, totally. So it's definitely on the innovation side. We're focusing on flavor and other materials like uh, rosin and things that are becoming more popularized, but don't really have the hardware for it. You know, a lot of companies just reuse the same center post cartridges like everyone else. And, you know, we've developed a couple unique innovations behind the cartridge and also, you know, like an e-rig product that uh, really move the needle forward in terms of innovation, where a lot of people are just kind of stuck in the same look and feel and uh, technology where we're really focusing on moving the needle forward and creating products that differentiate themselves based on heating components or flavor components or things like that. 